I don't know about you, but I got an email come on from Amazon about early Black Friday deals the day after Halloween. Talk about scary. So, if you're an entrepreneur, how do you break through the noise this holiday season? And if you're a shopper, how will you get the best deals? Well, this is Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. Joining me to untangle this retail riddle, I've got a great panel of experts. Adam Glassman is creative director at O, the Oprah Magazine, and has been preparing for this season for more than six months. Uh, Steve Sadov is former chairman and CEO of Saks and an advisor to MasterCard. And Lauren Hirsch is a retail reporter with us at CNBC.com. Welcome to all you guys. Also, uh, coming up later on the podcast, Daniel Lubetsky is the founder and CEO of Kind Snacks. You've probably seen the bars and the clean wrappers, but uh, you haven't heard the story. It is something else. But to dive in to retail now, it's a unique season. And so I want, I want to get some insight into how the retailers are thinking about it and thus how the consumers should be thinking about it. There's an extra day between Black Friday and Christmas this year, which means a whole lot of money. Steve, I'll start with you. What's going to be different about this holiday season, especially when you think about online shopping, the move to more mobile shopping? Uh, what should consumers and retailers be thinking about and how they can come together? Well, I think the starting point is that we've got a lot of momentum coming into the holiday season. The consumer's healthy, unemployment's low, consumer confidence is high. The numbers coming through, let's say, October are very good. Month of October was up 6% in terms of MasterCard spending pulse uh, trend numbers. And the forecasts for the season are for a plus 5% consumer. That's versus a 4% last year holiday season and a 3% the previous holiday season. So you've got probably the best holiday season, I'm guessing, since 2012. So I mean, this good, is good for retailers might mean something different than good for consumers, though, right? Because not retailers necessarily. Might feel like maybe we don't have to discount as much. Or not necessarily. No? I think that uh, inventories are in line. The margins are probably going to be pretty good. But having said that, the, the retailers know the consumers have perfect information on their phone. They can do the app, the, the bot that looks at the pricing. They know they have a lot of alternatives. The mobile not so much because the mobiles affect uh, is they're actually shopping all, doing all their shopping online it's affecting all of their purchase decisions so mm. probably 80% of purchase decisions are affected by mobile so the retailers are smart enough to know they better have a sharp price they're going to have to do the discounting so the consumer's going to get a deal However, I think the retailers are in an environment where they're going to be, it's going to be a little bit of a win-win. Mm. Consumer's going to get a good deal, and I think the retailer's going to do okay. Adam, uh, you're at O, yeah. the Oprah magazine. Oprah, among the many other things that she is, is a master curator for our time. Whether it is books, whether it is her favorite things, you know, she, she's telling people this, not that. How big an operation is it? How many favorite things does she have? This is our largest ever. We have 107 this year. It's a lot of favorite and things. Honestly, we go into it, literally, Oprah's like, do we need that many? Maybe we should just do about 10 or 15. Because back on the show, when the show, the Oprah show, it was like 25 items. For some reason, you know, we spend six months on it, and I have a team really of myself and two other people. We show her thousands of things. We ended up with 107 this year. Literally thousands yeah. of things thousands of things we call through because Oprah has to like everything herself she has to have tried it tasted smelled it 
be able to give it to someone else. Do you have an Oprah taste double? Like somebody who <laughs> likes the kinds of things that Oprah likes, who like does a first pass? Or, I mean, well, really her name would be Gail King. Okay. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and she's in our office between Gail, myself, and I have two co-workers, Lisa and Mindy. We try it all. Yeah. yeah. Well, Laura, how important is curation in this environment now? Because we, we've been talking about Omnichannel, which mm -hmm. is both in-store and online purchasing, and, and how big a deal that is with technology moving in. Curation becomes an important part of that, mm -hmm. whether it's the site, Amazon doing it for you, people who like this might like, or it's Oprah doing it yeah. for you. How big a deal is that in a, in a season like this where people are buying a lot of stuff in a compressed amount of time? It's a very big deal. Uh, the interesting thing about Oprah's greatest uh, favorite things is what we're seeing this season is you have Amazon with a toy catalog. You're seeing a lot of e-commerce players go and move into paper. And the interesting about the Amazon catalog is you can actually kind of use your cell phone to swipe it and buy it immediately online. So curation and kind of the combination of exploring on print and buying online or vice versa, exploring online and buying print is, is very important. And people like the idea of discovery. It's very right. important. Steve, you're an advisor to MasterCard and the calendar and the holiday season is really important. Okay, so you got Thanksgiving Day, which is now a big shopping day, even if you're on your phone right. in your, in your post-turkey coma. Uh, and, and you've got Black Friday, you've got Cyber Monday, which is the biggest day. But I noticed on the calendar, Christmas is on a Tuesday. So that Friday, Saturday, Sunday are likely to be really big days as well. Do you have a sense, both from MasterCard now, who you advise, and also your days running Saks, how is this likely to shake out? When are the, when are the best days for consumers to really focus on getting deals? Well, th this is almost a best of all worlds calendar. I mean, this is a great calendar with uh, the extra day, Tuesday, uh, Christmas. And you'd be surprised, the forecast for the biggest single day of shopping is not Black Friday. It's the Sunday before Christmas yeah. as the biggest day. About the same as Black Friday. But, you know, it used to be that Black Friday was you got up early. I used to get up with the kids at 3 a.m. and we'd go and hit the deals and you'd be done by 7 a.m. and gotten all the best deals. And now, with Thanksgiving Day, you know, internet has become an enormous. It's growing at let's call it twenty percent, and it's a it's not brick and mortar isn't dead. Uh, it's you've got by it's like eighty percent, right? Yeah, no, it, but it's now it's probably close to ten percent of all shopping is internet. But you've right. still got eighty ninety percent that's in the store. But the it, the importance of Black Friday and Thanksgiving Day is it's a kickoff of a mindset. All of a sudden, the consumer switches on. They're excited. They're saying, hey, i got to start thinking about that list. I'm going to see here are the deals. And that's where the importance of it is. And so it's not tracking the sales of Black Friday were X versus our expectation was Y. It's the mindset. The season actually goes all the way through the first of the year because the week after Christmas for a retailer is very important in terms of translating those returns into more sales. Sales. Sure. And then it's the Saturdays. Every Saturday during the month of December is a huge day. So I think if I were a retailer, I'd be looking at staffing on that those weekends and on that Sunday before Christmas. I'd be making sure that I've got those associates there to be able to treat the customers well. The deals for the consumer are going to spread throughout the season. You're going to have ups and downs, but you're going to see deals all the time. Adam, give us a peek behind the curtain on this curation bit. Mm -hmm. I mean, every especially smaller uh, uh, retailer or probably product developer's dream is to become one of Oprah's favorite things. Yes. You said there are 
literally thousands of products that actually even make it to you that you look at before picking the 150 some odd that, that actually become part of the list. How do you even get considered to be part of that? Because I'm sure there's, there's a, a world right. full of people who would like to be. There are. I mean, this is a fact. Myself and my team, we are at every trade show. We are at every store. We are checking out every showroom. We're always looking. People Instagram me. You would not believe it. I have found people that they have DM me hmm. on Instagram. And I'm like, well, this looks like an interesting idea. Does that work? Did you? Did Sometimes, you know? absolutely, it has worked. So there are people who DM'd you yes. on Instagram who got. And I'm like, on oh, this the- is interesting. Let me look at it. People send us stuff. I mean, daily we huh. get cookies and cupcakes and pictures. You name it. So we find people always. Truly. Wow, um, Lauren, how how much of a chance? Do the small retailers and the offbeats products really have during the season? It's actually a great time to be a small retailer. Uh, the funny thing is, is yes, we all talk about Amazon, and Amazon is a beast. I wouldn't recommend anyone kind of go up head up against them. But today's consumers, the millennial generation, they like things look. I'm sure your list will kind of indicate that, right? They like things local. They like things personalized. They like things unique. And you actually see big box department stores. You see retailers like Macy's trying to make themselves more local, smaller, more personalized. So actually, it's, it's a great chance to attract the consumer. I agree with Lauren. If you look at the growth rate in the last several years, the small local have been growing at twice the growth rate of the uh, big guys. Really? Oh, absolutely. So it's like an opposite and to it, the it, Walmart, what the consumer Amazon wants effect. is exactly. No, huh. Walmart's are doing well too, but right. it's the consumer wants something that's different. Mm-hmm. What Adam is off doing is finding that different, the unique, the personal, the words that Lauren's using. That's what the consumer's asking for. They don't want to. If it's a me too item, they want the lowest price. If it's going to be something that everybody else doesn't have, and it has to have a story to it. I think the that's story, important. That, the story that is key, so the important. storytelling behind that's, it. That's what you need. Who unique. are these people and the mom and pop? And, yep. you know, for us, the story continues beyond, like, the item. The story is during the selling season, we have people that now have to staff up. They maybe were a mom and pop with three people, and they've now hired 18 people. They've had to build a new warehouse or create new shipping ways and methods to get it out to people. For us, it's all about the small business owner. And where are they? Oh, they are all over. We have we have someone on the list this year in Michigan. We have people down in Florida. We have people down in Knoxville, Tennessee, all over. Logistically, how does that work? When do they find out that they're one of the favorite things? And then how long do they have to get ready? Because okay. it's like... They find out, usually we let people know right after Labor Day. It all depends on when I can see Oprah and when we can pick the final list. Do you tell them definitively or you're like, Oprah kind of likes? No, no, no. We do it definitively because we have a partnership with Amazon. So for one-stop shopping, you go to Amazon for everything. So a lot of these mom-and-pop people have never dealt Mm. with Amazon before. So there Uh. is a whole onboarding process for them to get comfortable with it and get inventory to Amazon and all of that. So, Are they afraid of Amazon a little bit? Some people are, absolutely. A lot of people are. Big people are afraid <laughs> of Amazon. I used to be afraid of Amazon until I really was entrenched in it. And I have to say they've been brilliant, especially for small businesses. Which how is much, why people are afraid of them. Yeah. How much of an impact, so you take a small business and you put them on 
the list, how much of an impact does that last throughout the year? Is it just a one-day bump, or is it such wonderful publicity that it just sticks? Or It's a combination. Yeah. It's never a one-day bump. Yeah. It's certainly their best quarter of the year. Mm -hmm. And for many of these small businesses, they decide to stick with Amazon throughout the entire year. I mean, we have this one gal, Gloria Williams, who has a company called The Foot Nanny, which is foot cream. And we launched her on Favorite Things. She's been with Amazon throughout the entire year hmm. and is growing her business really on Amazon. Hmm. So what's the difference between the, the product, the company that takes best advantage of this kind of exposure and the company that maybe gets copied and you know, falls off? Have you been able to isolate what it is about either telling the story or the uniqueness of the product that, that makes it more than just a one quarter pop for them? Well, it is about the story, quite frankly. We also do a lot of videos. Mm. We have Oprah testing and trying that. We really encourage our people on Favorite Things to sort of make the most of this moment. Market it. Go out there socially. Do some email blasts. Do Facebook. All this. I mean, we stick with them throughout the entire sales season. We don't just release it out there and say bye-bye. Mm. I mean, I'm always working with them. I mean, we have a people, they're called Pop Insanity, artisanal popcorn here in Suffern, New York. They did not know really about Oprah's favorite things. I said to these gentlemen, do you have a wife, a mother, and aunt? <laughs> Go ask them who Oprah is and what favorite things is. They called me back the next day. They go, we're on board. <laughs> it is $170 of a giant tin of popcorn. So not cheap at all. Mm. And it is sold out already. So you called them and were like, yes. you? And, and they were like, who? Oprah? Yeah, well, they knew <laughs> Oprah, but they didn't fully understand the whole thing. But like when I really say, look into it, and then they're on board. I love that. Like yeah. you're, you're really finding these. It's not just all people who are knocking on your door. That's cool. Uh, we got a question from a viewer. Uh, and Steve, I think th you would have insight into this. How does Small Business Day, November 24th, uh, get more traction for Christmas sales, or, or does it? I mean, everybody's trying to invent holidays. Is that small business uh, holiday re really having an impact that you know of? Oh, look, it's Amex created it. it uh, I think Brand that X. it... <laughs> Since yeah. you're advising MasterCard, uh, I no, they did, but it's uh, <laughs> advising MasterCard. MasterCard does some wonderful things, right, right. Uh, amazing. But it's look, I think it's bringing attention to the uh, to the small business community. Whether or not you're getting the sales being driven that day, I don't think that it's big number. I don't know the numbers, so it's uh, I don't think it's an enormous uh, uh, impact in terms of the overall sales. I, I do think what it's saying is it's, again, it's a kickoff that it's not just the big boxes; it's the small players are equally out there and uh, uh, creating offerings for the uh, consumer. I think that the small retailers, it goes back to Lauren's point, that where they are going to win is through the, they, have a they can do a better job if they're good at it, at the storytelling, at the unique product, at differentiation. That's, it, it's not about whether it's a uh, small business Saturday. It's about do they use the tools that are to their advantage. Mm -hmm. The Amazons are there. They're enormously important. But there are so many, so much white space and niches that people can play. Retail is enormous, yeah. and there's opportunity for all of these uh, players to win. One of the phenomena that I've seen is a convergence in retail, actually. Look at Amazon opening up stores. Mm -hmm. Then well, everybody who has brick and mortar is going omnichannel digital, right. and they're all finding because uh, it's reacting to the consumer. The consumer wants product anywhere, anytime they want to be able to get it. 
driven by the mobile, driven by the web, driven to buy online, pick up in store, you name it. And this, so this convergence, so everyone, when Amazon does a toy catalog in print or they open up a store, yep. and then you look at Walmart and all the creative things they've been doing digitally, and they're both winners. This isn't about a winner and a loser in the sense, but it's bringing the capabilities so that the consumer wins. Lauren, give me your take on this holiday creation thing, because we've had Black Friday for a while. Now we've got Cyber Monday. Amazon invented Prime Day. Alibaba invented Singles Day. Um, there's a MasterCard created Priceless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. The most important of all of the holidays. There's Pickle Day this week, which I hear is big in New York. We got a lot of good pickles here. I don't know, but but are these marketing efforts? to just drive sales in a noisy era. Do you have a sense of what makes a difference between how one works and one doesn't? I think, you know, we in the press help with those efforts to publicize them, so there you go. I mean, I, try, yeah. I, you know, I can't you really answer too. as to whether or not Joe on the street, he's motivated to buy because of it's Black Friday. What I can tell you is, and I'm sure you've seen this, you know, sales are starting earlier and earlier and earlier. People talk about it as a season. So Black Friday, Cyber Monday, those are great marketing events. It certainly gives us an exciting opportunity right. to talk and share ideas. But it's really about, I think, as you earlier mentioned, the broader season of steep discounts, and not only discounts, you have retailers trying out new technology. We're seeing a lot of people explore with uh, delivery. Target is um, trying out new things, Walmart, obviously. So it's more just about the season of retailers showcasing what they can offer in terms of a price and what mm -hmm. they can offer in terms See, of experience. The difference between, let's use your example of Singles Day. Right. Singles Day is different because everything is focused on the one day. So you have $30 billion of sales in the 31 billion in the one day, but everyone is combining all the sales, they're pre-selling and it all hits one day. In the US, the way that we're doing it is we're spreading it out over the entire season so that it's not just about, hey, if you miss Black Friday, every dollar sale was on Black Friday. That's a little different than how it's operating in China with the uh, singles day, because mm -hmm. we're extending it over the t time frame. Uh, Adam, maybe you can give me some insight into Oprah and her... <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'm going to try. Yeah, I, know, I know you can. Yeah. Her, her consumer um, connection, because mm -hmm. here, here's somebody who first became a star in the TV era, we had no World Wide Web, mm. um, yeah. created a magazine empire that she's on the cover of every time, mm -hmm. breaking rules, and has still managed without the show, and in a time when print is supposed to be declining, to, to be Our this- Our biggest issue of the year, biggest? in advertising and newsstand, mm. so print is far from dead. So how does, she and the brand stay relevant. What's the digital connection? Because we don't get to see that as clearly or as often. Are you, do you understand the, the age and demographics and location of where people are? Does that and that feedback inform what kinds of favorite things you're looking at, whether it's more right. foods or, you know, more pillows or I, I don't know. I mean, you know, it's a very good question. The truth is we go by, uh, Oprah and her gut and her feeling for what the American public is about to crave right before they even know it. Really? She had a wonderful feeling because she, doing the Oprah show, she met 
hundreds of women weekly. So she sort of knew that. Mm -hmm. Now she doesn't have that daily show, but she is out there between the network, the magazine, uh, and all her other things. She has a really good feeling. Now, we have a new website that we just launched with Hearst, which is amazing, and it has a younger audience. We have Oprah's network, which reaches millions of people. So we really are more about a psychographic than a demographic, truly. It's really about like the feeling that Oprah puts out there more than anything. So I mean, th this room, I covered Apple for a long time, have covered yeah. Apple for a long time, and Steve Jobs' thing was always, you can't focus group really creative new products because people only know they want what they've seen before. Mm. Mm. Is, is this a similar concept where Oprah in, in effect is saying, hey, I'm out there, I'm talking to people, I have my own curation sense, I don't have to rely on simply data, not that it's not valuable right, right, to right. inform what people are gonna want we're gonna we're gonna use some into some informed intuition here. That's pretty much how she's always rolled. I mean, even with the television show, ratings were fabulous. But there was a time when she decided she was gonna go in a different direction than the sort of Jerry Springfield Springer direction that everyone went, and she took a hit. But she stuck with it because she had a feeling that the public wanted more than people throwing chairs at each other. You know, if you she was it, right. If you broaden Adam to what you're saying. And I, I think at, uh, that uh, Oprah's sort of the master and the best at it. I mean, she really is. But if I look at where retail really is and has gone and is going, it's this blending of art and science. Mm -hmm. And that it's, people always used to ask me, is retail art or is it science? And the true merchant, it's their instinct and gut. But it's informed. That, go back to that informed. The data matters. And it's more, mattering more as you try to move in this world of analytics to understanding the customer at a level of one or small segments of uh, right. customers. But the instinct, being able to instinctually know where's the consumer go going, the, the role of the fashion office is still there because it's not, you can't use the numbers to always tell what the consumer is going to do. And Oprah was, is, is, is uh, terrific at, uh, at that. But good retailers or good merchants are able to do that uh, within companies. Now, the, that small, back to that small retailer, the great small retailer has really good insight in terms of their own customer, because they don't appeal to everyone. They appeal right. to a very narrow target. Names. They know, yeah, exactly. you know, my grandfather, I always used to, had a small clothing store in upstate New York, and he knew every one of his customers. And he'd buy for that customer, and that was how they lived, was understanding the, well, technology allows you to start doing some of that on a mass scale now, but it still was that instinct of who the uh, customer really is. I feel like a great example of that is um, Amazon. Uh, they've, as we all know, done a really big private label push, and one area that it's very much TBD as to whether or not they will be successful is female, young female apparel. That is very hard to, I'm sure right. you know from Zach, right? That's yep. very yeah. hard to predict vis-a-vis -vis data, and from what I've heard from people, from people that I talk to, it's been a challenge for Amazon as well. Yeah, I, I imagine it has. Once again, this is Fort Knox. We are talking about the holiday season. It's upon us, like it or not. If you want to get out there early, I guess you could check out Oprah's favorite things or, or start shopping online um, a, as well. Um, Lauren, when you look at the way different types of stores prepare for a season like this mm -hmm. and the types of products maybe that you're hearing more about, I mean, I'm starting to get a sense that 4K TVs 
Steep mm -hmm. discounts on those is what we should expect to see. One of the main things uh, out of the gate, Black Friday. Are there other trends, other things that you're seeing or hearing about that consumers should maybe have on their radar, either for big discounts or... Yeah. So I would say it's twofold. You can't ignore Amazon. Amazon loves to promote their, their own brands, their private brands. Last year we saw them promote their audio products mm. a lot, and I expect that's going to happen again this year because the Echo exactly because it's not Echo's only a dot is Echo. Fantastic. It's the not new only, Amazon spot is great. I don't have one, but I've heard wonderful things. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, for them, right, it's not only a one-day sale. You you get that sale, and you you get them in your full ecosystem. So that'll be big on Amazon, I suspect. But one interesting thing that I'm paying attention to is. Sears filed for bankruptcy in October. Right. Uh, and last year, we were in a similar situation with Toys R Us, yeah. right? So mm -hmm. Toys R Us filed for bankruptcy right before the holidays, and then what happened? They needed a great holiday season. Walmart, Amazon, Target, just last Here's year Here's what I want to know, yeah. yeah. So, people coming in trying to grab share that's the, because there's a, there's a gap in the market. So that's the thing, right? I mean, it's a little bit different. I would say there were more, I don't have numbers in front of me, I would expect there were more current Toys R Us shoppers than there are current Sears shoppers. That's been in slow decline for a while. Uh, that being said, they're still known for their appliances, and Kenmore is now sold on Amazon. So mm. it'll be very interesting to see if they make a play for that appliance market. Steve, you have any expectations about specific products or product categories where consumers can have particular success hunting for deals this season? Oh, I think the consumer is going to find deals across all categories. I mean, besides cashmere sweaters, we know that those are always well. It, cashmere sweaters, <laughs> but uh, no, look, the hottest trend in uh, apparel right now is athleisure. Still, so oh, absolutely, uh, and it's at the high, medium, low. Meaning, lux luxury brands are uh, building it into their mix as well as the entry level. So, uh, you know, so I think you're going to see the consumer clamoring for. Uh, products like that. And, you know, the deals will be there to be had uh, across every category. You know, if I look at the trends, electronics, uh, Lauren's talking about, I, I think you're going to see some great deals on uh, electronics, but you're coming into a holiday season where the electronic category couldn't be better. Yeah. I mean, they're seeing six, seven percent growth. The uh, you're going to, you know, you have hardware I and mean, the home improvement, home furnishings is a uh, is a category that's doing exceptionally well right now, mm. whether people are buying less new homes, but they're remodeling and they're uh, making sure that their current home is uh, well, well stuffed and has all the things that they want to have. That those are the kinds of things people are going to be buying. Uh, so I wouldn't say it's the single item. I'm looking across all the categories. Any, uh, I'm, maybe I'm putting you on the spot. Any smart home type stuff among Oprah's favorite well, things? We have she... the spot, which is great, and it does a well, lot yeah, of yeah. stuff. Okay, you're on Amazon, yeah, of course. But, 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 but she picked that. Okay. The new Apple Watch, I will <laughs> say, is fantastic because of all these new um, capabilities that it does and the health app. That is fantastic, and I suspect that will do very well. Have you seen any standouts just in these first few days of queries about traffic to certain favorite things? Are you, are you able yes, to? Yes, we have some things that are already, the vendors tell me, because Amazon, of course, we're not really privy to their numbers, mm -hmm. but the vendors tell me. So we have a lasagna pan that I you can make that. three different kinds of lasagnas, sold out. We have these beautiful glasses. No, from, wait, yeah. I, let, me, let me go back to lasagna, because yeah. I live in New Jersey, <laughs> okay. and I was, a, I was a lasagna fan before I lived in New Jersey, but three different lasagnas like at once? What, what's the, at what's once. One? You got a vegan at your house, you got a vegetarian, you have a meat lover. You mm. can make all three in that pan because it's divided. 
So you don't have to go out there and make different stuff for different people. A pan divided. A so pan you don't is have divided. To have a house divided. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. So your house doesn't have to be divided. That's beautiful. Your pan is. Okay, go on. So I that has been great. We have a company called Glitterville down in Tennessee. They make beautiful glasses. They are sold out. I mean, in fact, they tell me they've been in every magazine. We are the only magazine that actually moves merchandise to their wow. experience. So it's really home stuff does very well for us, too. Anything that's wellness-oriented. I mean, I have to say we have a jumpsuit that Oprah helped design with a group of uh, women out in L.A. called L.A. Relax. Made in the USA. Oprah loves a jumpsuit. So mm. she said, find me one that everyone can do. She if you helped eat too work much lasagna, on it. You can exactly, put on the you can wear this jumpsuit before and you get on your Weight Watchers. Exactly, plan. but it's a jumpsuit. <laughs> <laughs> it is a jumpsuit that you go from the office to dinner, on a plane to bed in, and that's what she likes. All right. Yeah. Final thoughts, everybody. Yes. Um, <laughs> final thoughts. Maybe a piece of advice for consumers: the best thing they can do to get the maximum value this holiday season. I know you're thinking about this all the time, Steve, so I'll go to you first. Well, I think it's going to be early and late. Yeah. I think that the consumer getting out there early, uh, take atoms that they run out of stock on some of the hot items, yeah. and some things can be replenished and others can't. Yeah. So if I'm a consumer and I have a category or an item that I really want to uh, go after, I'd get that early. If it's going to be some more commodity types of items that uh, uh, everybody has, a cashmere sweater, then, hey, you're going to find deals all throughout the season. I don't think you have to rush to get it. But overall, the consumer is going to be healthy. It's going to be a good season. So recognizing that, the, I think the retailers will run out of uh, inventories on good stuff. And you ought to be out there, and you're, there's going to be deals to be had. Great. Early and late, Lauren. Well, building on that, one of the interesting things about this year that we saw a little bit last year, but we'll see more this year, is the trucking shortage. So from what I'm hearing from my sources, there's a lot of concern among retailers as to whether or not they'll have enough people to get you, get you your hot item. Right. So you want to order those hot items first to make sure you can get them, because what retailers may start doing is limiting demand so they don't end up having disappointed customers. So early if you're choosy and... I, I say early. I mean, we released the list last Tuesday and people are shopping already. Right. So I say early for sure. Adam, Lauren, Steve, yeah. thanks. Up next, Daniel Lubetsky from mm -hmm. Kind Snacks. Daniel Lubetsky, thanks for sitting down for Fort Knox. Uh, such a story. Your dad was a Holocaust survivor. You studied to be a lawyer. Um, kind was not the first company you started, so uh, various different phases of success and failure. But I want to dig in with Kind first. About a year ago, you guys got a big investment from Mars, valuing you, I believe, at three to four billion dollars. Part of the goal of that international expansion. How's Kind doing? What's the latest? Kind's doing great. We're very fortunate. Uh, our partners are helping us take the Kind promise into many other countries. So we have a plan to go into 20 more countries in this upcoming year. 20 more? Yeah. How many are you in now? Well, we're probably north of 20, but there's, we, we are and we are. Like, we have a proper focus and team members on the ground and stuff in four countries. Mm -hmm. Mexico, Canada, I guess five. Mexico, Canada, uh, United States, United Kingdom, and Ireland. Mm -hmm. But a couple of even those five, it's only one or two team members. We're not going to really do it with a lot of seriousness. Like in the United Kingdom and in, in Canada, we have dozens of team members helping build a, a, 
a, a serious operation. And we hope that with this partnership, we're going to be able to bring health and wellness options to hundreds of millions more people. So we're very excited about it. Give me a sense of scale. Um, how many different bars and products do you have? How many are you selling in a given year? Well, you were alluding to how I started, and I started literally selling $100 at a time and being really excited when I would get an order for $100. Mm. And it was very difficult to make money because that $100 gave me like a gross margin of $40 or whatever. Mm. And then when I got a ticket for parking my car to deliver the product, <laughs> it erased the whole <laughs> profit for the day. So it was tough. And today we sell uh, over a billion bars a year. Wow. Yeah. And so where does that put you um, in terms of growth, in terms of scale, in this uh, nutritious food category? Um, we are probably, in, by different measures, the fastest growing or largest or most respected health and wellness brand in the United States. What I'm most proud of mm. is that we are the only brand that I know of, the only company that I know of, where 100% of the portfolio is made of products whose ingredients not only you can see and pronounce, it's our trademark ingredients you can see and pronounce, yeah. but also where the leading and predominant ingredient in everything we make is always something that's nutritionally rich and recommended for daily consumption by the dietary guidelines. Just to put that in perspective, because like sounds like just words, I'm not just comparing ourselves to confectionery, candy or sugary cereals or soda pop or... Uh, anything like that. I'm comparing ourselves within, even within our category of nutritional bars. Right, there's a lot of stuff that's made from mixes or... The number one ingredient in pretty much every one of our comparisons is some form of sugar. Mm. Whether it's brown rice syrup or tapioca syrup or date paste, which is a fruit, but it's primarily sugar. And in our case, the number one ingredient in everything we make is something that is recommended for daily consumption, like almonds or cashews or whole fruit or whole grains, 100% whole grains. Mm -hmm. And so all of our products are designed to create an option for people that want to snack, something that they can do the kind thing for their body and for their taste buds and they can consume every day. Let's talk about how you got here. Because it, it seems to me, in a way, you, you backed into this mode of success. It's like you yeah. were trying to do something good for the world and sort of ended up in a business. Yeah. The reason why you were trying to do something good for the world ties into your father's story. Correct. How? So right after law school, I started a company called PeaceWorks to try to use business as a force for bringing neighbors in conflict regions together and using business as a force for shattering cultural stereotypes, for cementing relations between people and for basically creating an incentive for, for neighbors to make money rather than fight. Why is that important to you? And the premise for that was my father was a Holocaust survivor. Mm. He was in the Dachau concentration camp. And since I was a kid, my parents, my mom and dad taught me about building bridges and about trying to prevent what happened to my dad from happening again to other human beings. So I've spent my entire life in one way or another trying to connect human beings, build empathy, emotional intelligence, both in the, through business projects that we call not only for profit that are businesses but with a social conscience, or through social projects that have an entrepreneurial uh, energy that's not very traditional charities or non-profits, but that rely on both models to try to awaken people and mobilize them towards building bridges. There's a story you've told that was passed down to you about your father at five years old making a sandwich for a hungry kid who yes. showed up 
at the door. Yeah. Your father didn't have a lot, putting all the things he could find in the kitchen that he wanted into the sandwich. And then when he went back to give the kid the sandwich, he had gone running barefoot into the street to find the kid to give him the sandwich. Yeah, I love the fact that I don't think anybody has uh, brought it up in an interview and it's one of, my family is one of the stories that we're most proud of, mm -hmm. but uh, I don't often share that story. And my grandmother told us that story about how my dad, who's a five-year-old kid and he was putting a lot of stuff in the sandwich and my grandmother was like, okay, the kid's gonna leave. He's like, no, but I wanna make the sandwich the way he would like it, the way I would like it. I wanna make him one the way I would like it. So by the time he ran to the kid, he had left. So my dad ran after him in the snow. What, why pass on that story? What's the message that you think was intended to be passed to your generation and, and what did you continue to carry from it? That story and basically all stories that my dad and mom and grandmother used to share with us had to do with our shared humanity, with being very proud of who we are but recognizing that we're all in this together and that we need to treat other human beings the way we want to be treated. That's fundamentally what that story is about, is be kind to one another and treat others the way you want to be treated. Mm. So your first and, venture. And, and be, make sure that those that are at need don't get, that, you, that you're there for them. Like when I once had my, a story with my dad and he told me how he moved to Mexico and he was working two or three shifts and there was a gentleman that was asking for alms for money in Mexico mm -hmm. and who was blind so my dad would give him some money every day and then one, that, one day my dad turned around and noticed that this gentleman stood up, took off his like fake glasses and walked into a very nice car and my dad barely had any money and he was working two and three shifts and he was helping a man that was fraudulent and when I and I asked him well that how does that make you feel does that make you feel that they shouldn't give and he said no absolutely not like I'd rather be wrong sometimes but never turn back a person that that needs me than than to turn my back on someone that actually where things could really matter now we live in New York City you can't really every single day help every single person it's a cynical place sometimes it's cynical and also there's value valid policy reasons why helping a person in the subway might not be the right way to, to help a societal challenge and to, to address you know, systemic problems with poverty or other stuff. There, there, there are valid arguments about that, but the fundamental uh, warmth and dignity uh, in terms of the approach, I think, is valid. My, sorry to tell you so many stories of my family, but yeah, my cousin once told me about a story. He, he was my New York cousin because I was the Mexican cousin <laughs> before I moved to New York. And he's, uh, you know, 20 years older than I. And once he was telling me that he had a car accident where he lost all his teeth. Mm. So he, where they were making his new teeth at the dentist, so he had no teeth. And as he was walking by a homeless person, asked him for money, and my, uh, my cousin said, ar, ar, um, he wouldn't say, I'm sorry, I can't, but the homeless person saw that he had no teeth, so the homeless person thought that my cousin was homeless also. He said, oh, I'm so sorry, brother. I, I, I'm sorry that I, um, like he was like very warm towards my cousin, and my cousin, since that day, recognized that the warmth with which he was treated meant also that for people, being treated with dignity is, even more important than that one dollar. Mm -hmm. And 
since that, I really try very hard that when somebody's asking me for money on the streets, I don't ignore them. I just look at their eyes and say, I'm sorry. Like, if I, if I decide not to give them money, I at least acknowledge, acknowledge them and, and, and warm, give them a warm look. And I think it has an incredible amount of impact uh, to treat every human being as an equal. Yeah, that's a big lesson. And, and part of what you uh, were pursuing with PeaceWorks, um, the idea that you could uh, take a food product native to the Middle East and bring it to America in a way that hadn't done, been done before and, and use it to have economic cooperation between Arabs and Jews. Tell me the, the, the genesis of the idea and how it worked out or didn't. I'll tell you the genesis of the idea and then I tell you where we really screwed it up. <laughs> the, the genesis of the idea was as you described. I was doing a lot of research. I had just finished law school and I was doing a lot of theoretical research on how to connect human beings through business. And one of the industries where there was symmetric cooperation among equals was in the agricultural sector. Mm. So as I was doing this research and I was in Israel, I went to a supermarket and I bought this obscure looking jar of sun-dried tomato spread. And I didn't know in the early 90s what a jar of sun-dried tomato spread was. So I tried it and it was so delicious. I downed the whole jar. We still make it under the brand Meditalia. PeaceWorks still makes it. Mm. And it was really, really delicious. And I tried to buy some more. There was no more. So I inquired at the store how I could get more. And they told me the company's gone out of business. Long story short, I made friends. I, I tracked down the manufacturer, told him about the idea. And he loved it. And I think he didn't have many other options because he really <laughs> didn't have a business. But he really connected with the idea. And his name is Joel Benish. And he really loved the concept. So we ended up rebuilding from scratch this new venture where I would buy the product, but this time instead of him sourcing the sun-dried tomatoes from Italy and the glass jars from Portugal, he started buying the sun-dried tomatoes from Turkey, the glass jars from Egypt, and the olives from the Palestinian territories, and the basil from Palestine, and he was importing from Jordan, Turkey, uh, the Palestinian territories, Egypt. And those economic relations ended up yielding human relations that till today, 25 years later, are, are alive and, and have even gone from generation to generation. You've you got to talk to people and think about what they need yeah. in order to do business with them. And also when you are, first of all, that it humanizes people. It's much easier, harder to hate when you are connecting on an equal basis with dignity with one another. And then the second thing is that it creates a vested economic interest because you're making money. But the way we screwed up is that then you're talking about our Mediterranean products which did have legitimacy, some dried tomato spread, olive pesto, basil pesto. But then in our naive, early, hungry years where we didn't understand the importance of authenticity of your products, we started launching, expanding into categories like this sweet and spicy teriyaki pepper spread. Mm. And it made no sense in the world because <laughs> why would you be buying teriyaki pepper spread from the Middle East? But that was like one of the lessons from our early years about not losing your way by, by just trying to be everything to everybody and stay focused in what authentically you can do. How did you apply that at KIND? We're really, really obsessive about our KIND promise. Like we will never launch a product that we don't feel 
does the kind thing for our bodies, for our taste buds, and for our world. What's a product that maybe you came close to launching or somebody wanted you to launch that you ended up saying, eh, no, that's so teriyaki many. pepper spread. <laughs> <laughs> so many of them. Like we had a, a project where at one point people were providing quote-unquote zero sugar uh, bars mm -hmm. and there was a lot of pressure to reduce sugar and we at one point considered starting to add some of these sugar alcohols and some of these unpronounceable ingredients to, to, but it just didn't feel kind, it wasn't real food. And we said, no, no, that's not us, we're never gonna do that. We'll lower sugar naturally by doing some bars that don't have fruit because the fruit naturally contain a little more sugar. We have a, a line, our, the number one best-selling product in, in, our, in our space is the kind dark chocolate nuts and sea salt and it only has five grams of sugar but it does it in a very natural way, just by being almond first, and mm. it's delicious, but it, we achieved, rather than zero sugar, five grams sugar, which is really just a teaspoon of sugar. It's a very modicum of sugar. It's, it's very well balanced, it's delicious, mm -hmm. but you don't, you don't miss the sugar, but because you have very premium ingredients, it's a really great experience, and, and we did it without having to lose our way by having to add sugar alcohols or synthetic or artificial sugars. You've talked uh, in the past about this interesting attitude about data. How, you know, and, and the world is awash in data right now. There's all this focus on having the best data and making decisions based on data. You don't want to make too many decisions based on data because there's the danger, you say, of being backward looking and just copying what's already been done. Um, how do you balance that with this pressure to use data to be smarter about what's coming. Yeah, first of all, I work with team members that are authentically far, 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 far smarter than I am. <laughs> and a lot of them lean very heavily on data and we learn a lot and I just want to respect that data has a very important role to play also, particularly in this day and age where it's everywhere. And, and just earlier today, I had a lunch with our IT team and we have an entire team that all they do is crunch through the data and it's super valuable. My point is that I'm more an instinctive person and the gut tends to tell you what the data will tell you about tomorrow. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just an incredible thing that we human beings have and we need to rely on that instinct and on gut. And there, there are people that are more data oriented and people that are more instinctive. I'm much more the latter and it served me very well. And I do think that if you're listening to yourself and listening to all of the inputs in society, you have within you a sense of where we're heading and what's going to happen. And uh, isn't that because, you know, sort of that liberal arts idea, I mean, your data is only as good as the data sets that you knew to collect. Yeah. But with the whole richness of experience, it could be something that you read, yeah. a, a fictional uh, account of something that happened in a yeah, faraway place. cross-disciplinary thing that right? you're referring to where you, all of these things, and it's such a complex world. Complex set of factors, and your gut, your brain already does a lot. There's also a really interesting book I read called The Good Gut that talks about the importance of feeding your gut, literally, like your gut, literal like your microbiome. Right. Yeah. And there's increasing amounts of research of how people are feeding your gut just uh, sugar and empty calories and empty carbohydrates. It's, our space is replete. In fact, we just announced today the introduction of. Uh, entry into the reduced uh, pack size category, but that category is dominated by empty calories. Like they sell you 100 calorie packs of cookies, but the cookies 
they may only be 100 calories, but it's empty calories. Not all calories are created equal. And we're now launching bars that are 90 to 100 calories, with just half size of our regular size bars. But they also are providing you real nutrition. They're providing you essential fatty acids. They're providing you polyunsaturated and monounsaturated uh, healthy fats from almonds that are good for your brain's functioning, for your heart's functioning. They're providing you fiber, which is very important for the gut. Mm -hmm. And the, the book, The Good Gut, makes the argument, this is a doctor that's done tons of research, that feeding your gut, gut is not just important with whole ingredients, it's not just important to feed the microbiome so that it doesn't end up creating inflammatory diseases. Because in the last you know, few decades, infectious diseases in society have gone down, but in modern society, inf in inflammatory diseases have just mm. exploded, and it's because we're feeding our gut the wrong stuff. But that it's not just that, that there, we don't totally understand how our gut informs our brain, but in very real scientific ways, there's actually a neural path where how our gut is kind of, like when you're hungry and you haven't eaten, it tells you what you want. But when you, if you've eaten too many carbs, sometimes you crave those veggies. If you're not eating enough protein, you, your body actually is commanded by your gut more than you realize. And there's like a trillion um, healthy microbiome, uh, microbes that are helping complement your understanding of who you are. And so your gut in a very real scientific way actually helps guide your brain in some decisions. So it's a, it's a, fa it's a fascinating book. That is uh, fascinating. We really are thinking with our stomachs. To yeah, we really, that, is, that uh, proverb about thinking with our gut actually comes from somewhere. Uh, well, uh, I really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation. Um, and I look forward to seeing what Kind does next. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here. My thanks to Daniel Lubetsky, Adam Glassman, Steve Sadov, and our own Lauren Hirsch. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Uh, leave me a note. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox series on LinkedIn. That is a brand new and great way to keep up with the trends I'm seeing both on this Fort Knox show and in my other work on CNBC. It's also the absolute best way to keep in touch with me personally. Le leave a comment on the series. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. And as a matter of fact, you can go there now and see videos of these conversations. Or you can go to the CNBC apps on Apple TV or Amazon Fire TV and find Fort Knox in the featured area. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or FortKnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.